You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 3rd of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The U.S.'s fear, of course, is that the Taliban will go back to its pre-September 11th role of harboring terrorism, and that will end up being a launch point for future attacks. That I think the Taliban itself will probably split because there are those who are absolutely unreconciled to any kind of peace deal and want to carry on fighting. In fact, pathologically want to carry on fighting whatever the circumstances, it seems. As another bomb detonates in Kabul, negotiations between the US and the Taliban continue. My guests Michael Binion and Brian Klaas will be discussing that and the day's other news, including Trump's new envoy to Mexico getting in agua caliente by criticising a national treasure. Plus... Yeah, it's a bit of a running theme, isn't it? Uh, we hear the news about an exciting new app which promises to do unbelievable um, things, whether it's ageing us 30 years or turning us into, putting us into uh, movie scenes. And inevitably, 24 or 48 hours later, there's some um, more uh, pessimistic news about what's actually being done with the data. And facial recognition and subpoenaed doorbells. We'll have the latest tech roundup. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Michael Binion, Foreign Affairs Specialist at The Times, and Brian Class, Assistant Professor of Global Politics at UCL and host of the Power Corrupts podcast. In a moment, we will hear about those unfolding negotiations being held between the US and the Taliban. But first, with the UK's parliament now back from recess and Prime Minister Boris Johnson still insisting on a Halloween departure date for Brexit, the proverbial is most definitely hitting the fan. Here is Monocle's Tom Edwards with the latest. Thanks, Andrew. Indeed. After returning following an inexplicable summer recess, MPs somehow managed to further muddy the already murky waters in Westminster. PM Boris Johnson insisted in the House of Commons this afternoon that there was real momentum in talks with Brussels about leaving the EU bloc with a deal. But his tenuous grasp on power, if not reality, was thrown into sharp relief when Tory MP for Bracknell, Philip Lee, dramatically crossed the floor, defecting to the pro-European Lib Dems. As a consequence, the government has lost its already meagre majority. An application is in process for an emergency debate on the need or not to extend the Brexit deadline once more, an event Johnson has categorically asserted will not come to pass. Should the application succeed, a vote later will determine whether Parliament will seek a further extension from the European Union. Whether an extension is granted or not remains to be seen. More interesting, perhaps, is to find out just how elastic Boris Johnson really is. Now, there's a thought for you, Andrew. Thank you, Tom. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Michael Binion and Brian Klaas. Well, let's look at Afghanistan. Talks have been continuing between the United States and the Taliban, attempting to construct a mechanism by which the United States can reduce its exposure to a war it lost interest in some years ago, while minimising the chances of an outcome which might compel them to recommence it in earnest. US officials are said to have told their Afghan counterparts that a deal has been struck to withdraw 5,000 more American 
American troops from Afghanistan, leaving a presence of around 8,600. At roughly the same time, the Taliban bombed a compound of guest houses in Kabul, killing at least 16 people and injuring dozens. Uh, Brian, this bombing occurred while much of Afghanistan was watching a televised interview with US envoy Zalmay Khalilzad, uh, which was probably not coincidental. What is their point? Well, I, I mean, I think that they're trying to drive a hard bargain, obviously, but I think what this is going to do to the talks and to the US perception of them is to raise the question of whether this is a workable deal. And this is something that Trump has to decide because he hasn't necessarily signed off on this yet. The US's fear, of course, is that the Taliban will go back to its pre-September 11th role of harboring terrorism, and that will end up being a launch point for future attacks. And of course, you know, this ruthless bombing doesn't exactly do anything to allay those fears. I think also you have the dynamics politically in the U.S. that people are, as you say, they've lost interest in the war and also they're sick of it. Um, they look at it and they say, OK, 18 years, what do we have to show for it? The Taliban controls half the country still. Um, you know, we've, we've lost quite a lot of people. We've spent a lot of money. And if you look at things like Trump's tweets... Uh, I, I went down the, <laughs> the unfortunate rabbit hole of looking at, at frequency of Trump's tweets at one point, and he had tweeted about Afghanistan something like a dozen times. By comparison, he's tweeted about crowds since he's become president hundreds of times, right? I mean, this is not something that is high on his agenda, and he just wants it off the uh, off the off of his desk going into 2020. Of course, the big risk for him is that if he gets it off his desk by actually drawing down troops and it goes really badly, then all of a sudden that's going to be a political liability for an already very shaky foreign policy in an election year. Uh, we will come back to that point. But uh, Michael, the idea of withdrawing all but a few US troops by 2020, which is what Trump says he wants, is the practical consequence of that surrendering Afghanistan back to the Taliban? Probably, yes, uh, except that I think the Taliban itself will probably split because there are those who are absolutely unreconciled to any kind of peace deal and want to carry on fighting. In fact, pathologically want to carry on fighting whatever the circumstances, it seems. And there's another group just ready to take them in and uh, join forces, and that's uh, Islamic State, ISIS. They have uh, made a a show of um, being in Afghanistan. They are rivals to the Taliban. They're equally extremist, and they have no intention of some kind of peace deal, certainly not with the United States. I think uh, there is a feeling, well, let them fight it out. There's a feeling in the in the West, in America, certainly, and probably in many other countries, rather cynically, uh, they'll never make peace with each other. They never have in the past. They'll continue fighting. Uh, but probably what the, the strategy is, let's keep a reserve trigger force, as it were. And if, thing, if it looks as though uh, things are going very wrong and terrorists are being embedded back in Afghanistan, we can then go back in again with a massive bombing campaign and uh, just uh, finish them off. And that might be what is at the back of the minds of those uh, running the peace talks. Uh, Brian, you mentioned earlier how this might play into an election year if it all goes terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, and, and where Afghanistan's concerned, that's usually a reasonable bet. But would it, would it make any impact on Trump's actual base if it was perceived else, even if it was perceived elsewhere as an explicit capitulation to the Taliban? Do any of Trump's voters really care one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, this is a very difficult question, actually, because Trump's base, you know, in some ways just sort of goes off whatever song sheet he's reading at the moment or singing at the moment. And so, uh, you know, some of them are not ideologically driven. They don't care. They'll just do whatever Trump says. That's a significant part of his base. There's another part of his base, though, that he appealed to as isolationists, effectively. These are the, the actual ideologues around America first and uh, withdrawing from foreign, you know, adventures, as they would put it. And, and I think this is something where 
then the weird thing is that Trump's real risk is not drying down, right? That, that actually the blowback towards his base would not be from Afghanistan collapsing and becoming a dangerous, you know, cesspit of, of, of or cesspool of, of violence, but more than it already is, but actually that the U.S. would be drawn back into the conflict. Whereas for the independents and the Democrats that he needs to actually persuade some of them to win, the risks of the Taliban basically becoming, you know, as I said, the pre-September 11th incarnation where it poses a direct risk to the United States, that's going to be a foreign policy vulnerability that Democrats will exploit. So he'll be caught between very difficult uh, circumstances on both sides, either that he gets too involved and alienates some of his diehard base supporters who are isolationists, or it goes really badly and then the Democrats have another avenue to attack him with. Uh, Michael, at this point, 18 years into this conflict, I mean, you know, long enough that the, the sons and daughters of soldiers who deployed there in 2001 could be deploying an American uniform. What does the US still owe the government of Afghanistan? They don't owe it very much. They've spent a vast amount of money. I suppose there has been the assurance that they will try to help the government establish the rule of law throughout the whole of the country and establish some form of democracy. I mean, it's more tribal democracy. It's sort of gathering of the clan chiefs, which is the traditional way that they have elected uh, community leaders. But there has been a guarantee that Afghanistan should have a prosperous future. They've rather uh, drawn back on the previous guarantees of freedom uh, for, well, greater rights for women and uh, good education and things of that kind. And uh, there is the sort of thinking, well, frankly, it's not up to outs outsiders to decide how their society should be run. Uh, so the actual explicit guarantees to the Afghan government, not very many, really. Uh, and you might say the Afghan government owes much more to the United States. OK, well, finally on our news panel, let's go to Mexico, where the new US ambassador has hit the ground running. Christopher Landau, appointed by President Donald Trump, decided to kick his tenure off by taking a swipe at Frida Kahlo, of all people. Landau's issue, tweeted after a visit to the artist's house, now a museum, was not with Kahlo's surrealist self-portraits as such, but with Kahlo's fondness for communism. What I do not understand, tweeted Landau, in, in fairness, decent Spanish, is her obvious passion for Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism. Didn't she know about the horrors committed in the name of that ideology? Um, Brian, not wishing to dispute the horrors committed in the name of those ideologies, but there's a time and a place, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I, I agree with the tweet, right? I mean, I think that it's something where the tweet says, you know, you shouldn't support Stalin. Yeah, that's right. But I, I also think that uh, in a time when there are already very frayed relationships between the United States and Mexico, uh, maybe don't tweet, right? I mean, that's one of those things where the, I think that's some, something that diplomats have as a judgment call is when to just keep quiet about things. Um, that being said... I don't think that this gaffe is going to fundamentally reshape relations when, you know, I mean, Mexicans care about how Trump constantly insults them and is behaving in, in ways with serious policy consequences that could affect their economy much, much more than, than Frida Kahlo. I mean, it will be, I think, a storm in a teacup in the end. But it does sort of highlight how undiplomatic the Trump administration is just, every, just about everywhere else around the world. Um, Michael, as Brian points out, uh, Christopher Landau did have the option of just saying nothing at all. He could have just tweeted in his, in, in fairness, impeccable Spanish that he was uh, very honoured and very thrilled to visit the home of Mexico's greatest artist and so forth. He didn't have to tack the thing about Marx onto the end of it, which does bring us again back to that question of, 
is this just somebody saying a dumb thing or did he actually have some outcome in mind? Is there a strategy being pursued? I think he didn't need to say it at all. I mean, the definition of a good diplomat is a person who thinks twice and then says nothing. (laughs) Uh, uh, But uh, I think he just wanted to be part of the story, part of the argument. I mean, he was invited uh, to to go there, and she is a celebrated person. I think he just wanted to correct the balance, as you say, and as Brand said rightly, why did he need to do it? Uh, A good diplomat actually sometimes should keep a fairly low-key profile, and uh, particularly at a time when the Mexicans are looking to take offence at whatever the Trump administration may do, this is a good time not to give them that excuse. Um, Brian, is is this possibly a consequence of that American habit, and Trump is very far from the only president to have done this, to send overseas to very important ambassadorial posts, not necessarily career foreign service people, but basically friends of the president? Yeah, it's interesting. So I I wrote a column about this uh, a couple months ago, and and actually Trump has spiked the number of uh, diplomats who are unqualified higher than than before. I mean, it was already egregious. It's a terrible practice across. Um, it's a bipartisan stain, I should say, on, on American presidents that they often sell ambassadorships to the highest bidder. Um, but Trump has made it worse, and he's actually got uh, more ambassadors as a percentage of his ambassadorial core that are, uh, you know, basically people who have donated him money. Um, and, and, and one thing that I think is really pernicious about it is that they then use as qualifications their previous posts to then rise up the, the food chain, so to speak. And a great example of this is the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., who used to be the U.S. ambassador to Canada, who had no qualifications other than that she bundled a huge amount of money to the Trump inauguration and the Trump uh, campaign. And then her experience in Canada, in which she did a terrible job, in my view, was then used to sell her as a qualified ambassador to the United Nations. And so it's got knock-on effects beyond it. And and you hope that, you know, there's actually going to be some outcry. But the problem, of course, as I say, is that Obama did this to a lesser extent, but still did it. And it makes the Democrats' objections to it ring a little bit more hollow. Just I was going to say, I think the problem is that ambassadors who are not career diplomats don't always know how to behave. I mean, there was a, uh, a, an example a little while ago in Norway where the US ambassador, a friend of the president, got horribly drunk and was caught climbing into his own embassy after midnight. <laughs> well, who, who among us? <laughs> Brian, just, just a final quick thought on this. Should Mexico's ambassador to Washington, D.C. currently be, you know, planning a, an insult of, I don't know, Elvis Presley? Well, I think they would probably have more grist for the mill if they went for, like, the racist leaders that have statues around the country, right? I mean, I think that's something where it's obviously a touch point in the U.S., and they've got a point, right? Nathan Bedford Forrest, the the person who founded the Ku Klux Klan, has statues in the South still, might be a, a tweet that can come from the Mexican ambassador back to the U.S. Michael Binion and Brian Klass, thank you both very much. In a moment, the latest in our inexorable slide into dystopia in a tech roundup. But first, with a look at some of the other stories we're following, today. Here is Monocle's Marcus Hippie. Thanks, Andrew. A new report published by the UN suggests that the UK, France and America may be complicit in war crimes in Yemen. It makes the case that by providing logistical and weapon support to the Saudi coalition, the Western nations have served to elongate the conflict. The report recommends that a universal ban on arms imports to any party involved in the conflict be brought in with immediate effect. 
Hong Kong's embattled leader Carrie Lam has denied ever offering to resign. It follows the emergence of an audio recording in which she says she would quit if she could. Lam says she has never tendered any resignation, but has not disputed the authenticity of the leaked recording. And finally, it's been confirmed that Brazil's president Jair Bolsonaro will not attend a summit on fires in the Amazon rainforest because he is preparing for surgery. The far-right leader was stabbed during last year's presidential election campaign and has had to undergo a number of subsequent operations. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. And joining us now for the latest developments in tech, here is Josh Cowles, researcher in ethics at the Alan Turing Institute, talking to Monocle's Paul Osborne. You were talking a moment ago about the row there was in the UK about facial recognition software in a part of London. And a while ago, there was this face aging app thing that everybody was obsessed with. And then it turned out was shipping data back to who knows who. And now there's another uh, face scanning app that's gone viral. Yeah, it's a bit of a running theme, isn't it? Uh, We hear the news about an exciting new app, which promises to do unbelievable um, things, whether it's aging us 30 years or turning us into putting us into uh, movie scenes. And inevitably, 24 or 48 hours later, there's some um, more uh, pessimistic news about what's actually being done with the data. So in this case, yeah, we have an app uh, which is putting um, Chinese uh, users of this app's faces into famous Hollywood and uh, Chinese movies, um, which is obviously quite appealing, uh, and uh, letting them share them online. And of course, what this is relying on is some pretty sophisticated AI to uh, extract their face, as it were, and put it uh, into these scenes. Now, the uh, the, the the crux here, unfortunately, is that um, the app's terms and conditions have some fairly uh, stringent copyright rules around what can be done with those images. So they can be used in marketing purposes. Basically, the company owns your face or at least owns images of your face uh, as soon as you upload it. So uh, again, as with the previous example of the face aging app, it seems like um, there's no free lunch when it comes to using AI in ways that make you make you look different. And I'm, I'm going I'm to sound like the grumpy old man that I am, but you'd have thought at this stage that people would perhaps have twigged that when somebody offers you some amazing free thing and all you have to do is upload a picture of your face or something, where where's that going? The, the most beneficial, the nicest version is that you're teaching some sort of AI system how to recognize faces. And the worst one is that you're, you're uploading it to the, every police database in the world. Well, exactly. And I think it, it points to um, the fact that these systems are still pretty expensive to develop and also really expensive to host. Uh, this app, within hours of being launched, blew through its kind of monthly uh, server allowance because it proved so popular. It shot to the top of the um, app charts in China. Um, but this does point to uh, the wider fact that these things are extremely appealing, borderline, maybe addictive for some people to use, at the very least um, quite alluring for people to uh, to see what they look like in these different contexts, powered by the social side of it. If all your friends are on it, then you can see why perhaps there'd be a temptation to do it yourself. Now, why should we be concerned that the firm behind internet-connected doorbells has signed a series of partnerships with police forces? Doesn't that, on paper, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. Yes, this is another interesting story. Um, out of the US, um, the company Ring, owned by Amazon, has uh, it's been re- revealed uh, partnered with um, over 400 police forces in the US. As you say, there may be some benefits to to doing this. Um, police are able to um, request uh, video footage uh, of crimes after 
that they've allegedly happened from people in the vicinity. Um, but there is a bit of a creep factor here for several reasons. Uh, first of all, these cameras look you can see it slightly beyond your own doorway to the rest of the street. So it might be that people across the street haven't consented to having their doorways um, looked at in, in this way. Uh, and also it, it suggests, I think, that there is a increasing willingness on the part of the police to kind of partner with um, commercial firms to um, almost do their job for them. There's some really interesting language used here in uh, what police say when they try to get residents to hand over their video footage, which they still have to consent to, um, around, you know, making neighbourhoods safer uh, and uh, and sharing um, for the safety of the community, making communities stronger. Um, and there's also evidence that's come out that showed that the company itself, Ring, um, vetted basically um, press releases from police forces announcing that they were partnering. So this kind of linking between commercial uh, and societal is a trend which we see all over the place, but it's particularly interesting here. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that there is a real push in these partnerships with police forces to then effectively make those doorbells ubiquitous across an entire community. So, well, you know, 80% of people have got these. Now you don't want to be the one who doesn't have one. You're letting the community down if you don't buy one. Exactly, and it's almost the identical dynamic to what we talked about before with the social pressure, where, if, as you say, if um, four out of five people on your street have one of these cameras, then you're not pulling your weight by having one yourself. So it's a pretty smart tactic because it means that the police don't have to go through um, the kind of democratic hoops that you'd normally have to go through. We've seen um, incredible work in different parts of the US banning things like facial recognition technology. Um, But if it's done in the commercial sphere, it's subject to different kind of pressures and often fewer restraints. Uh, And lastly, why is the United States militarising its fight against fake news? Yeah, so as a result of some of the things we've been talking about, um, the rise of devices that collect um, personal data uh, and also the uh, increasing ability of AI to actually... um, create um, almost virtual reality uh, out of um, personal data. We, we've seen um, the rise of disinformation, misinformation spreading around um, the internet. And I think perhaps a little bit belatedly, given the um, denials of the commander in chief of the US, the military seems to be um, taking this issue quite seriously in terms of how it can um, inflame public opinion, uh, lead to mass, uh, potentially mass panic in certain contexts, uh, all at this really fast um, speed and scale that things seem to move around the web today. So yeah, the DARPA, which is the slightly um, murky part of the uh, US Department of Defense, which actually created the internet in the first place or laid the foundations of the internet originally, has turned its attention to um, this example uh, of uh, deep fakes and disinformation spread through AI-powered kind of um, algorithms which which can make people seem to be saying things that they're not saying, put people in uh, different situations, and so on. So I think it's very interesting that they have uh, finally taken this step. The roadmap for the project is a little bit on the slow side. Uh, they have four years to get these uh, projects off the ground, and in four years' time, the, project, the, the technology may have come on even more leaps and bounds in that time. So it'll be interesting to see whether it has any success. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, that... that if the purpose of this is for the agencies of the state to be able to say, oh, no, that's not true, then the people who would push that conspiracy would think, well, that's exactly what an agency of the state would say. Exactly. In a time when, um, you, as I say, you have a commander-in-chief who is um, not averse to spreading some mistruths and half-truths through his own official, as it were, um, government account online, um, you can see situations arising where the government is trying to tell uh, the population one thing, but the population just isn't really willing to believe it. Thanks to Josh Cowles and Paul Osborne. In a moment, the politician putting the fuck back into Democratic nominee for president. 
This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And now, though swearing has long been considered improper for politicians, one US Democratic hopeful might just be making it a feature of his campaign. When we hear politicians using what is euphemistically known as unparliamentary language, it is usually an accident, an exclamation broadcast by a microphone they hadn't noticed. For one contestant for the US presidency, however, cursing has become a tactic. Beto O'Rourke, former Democratic congressman from Texas, has been swearing out loud in full knowledge that cameras and therefore voters and his mother are watching. O'Rourke's first notable outburst was early in August, exasperated by inane questions about the relationship between President Donald Trump's rhetoric and a mass shooting in O'Rourke's hometown of El Paso. O'Rourke sighed, I mean, members of the press, what the fuck? This earned considerable traction, especially online, and any such spike will appeal to a candidate who is, as O'Rourke is, polling in low single digits. So it may not have been coincidental that when O'Rourke responded to another massacre in Texas last week, he proclaimed, this is fucked up. He later repeated the sentiment on Twitter, and t-shirts bearing a judiciously bolderized version of the message became available from O'Rourke's website. But tone will matter in 2020. Democrats would be ill-advised to descend to the coarseness of their opponent. That said, there is little disputing O'Rourke's subsequent reflection. Profanity is not the F-bomb. What is profane is a 17-month-old baby being shot in the face. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yolin Goffan and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Maylee Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. The House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks for listening. Listener.